Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia is now among those states with a majority of its folks officially eligible for a COVID-19 vaccination. And this includes states like Alaska and Mississippi. So, but here's a question. What lessons can be learned from these other states when it comes to getting these vaccines distributed efficiently and in a equitable manner. We're joining me now to discuss this from Georgia State University or Bill Rencher. He's a senior research associate with the Georgia Health Policy Center and Tanisa Adimo, assistant project director with the center. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's go back a little bit and do some reflection. I always love to ask these questions. We think back to last year this time. If someone had said, you know what, we will have not one, not two, but three and maybe four potential vaccines ready for folks. Tanisa, I'll start with you. Would you have believed it? I will say I would have believed it. You know, our work, (laughs) I would have growth. Our work has been with rural communities all across the country who first started out uh, a year ago, really working with their communities to understand the vaccine, to um, address COVID-19 exposure. Um, And we're all very hopeful at that time that we would be on the other side of COVID with a vaccine very soon. So really glad that we are here at this moment and have more than one vaccine for folks in communities now. All right, Bill, what about you? You would have believed it. someone told you this last year? Yes, I would have believed it as well. I think that just being in the health, public health field, we know about all kinds of advancements that have been made over the years with vaccines, particularly the development, actually the work that's been done for several years now on a SARS vaccine, mm-hmm. SARS being very similar to the coronavirus. Um, so it wouldn't have surprised me. It, it might've surprised me <laughs> that I'd still be working from home a year from now, mm-hmm. but uh, that we'd have a vaccine. No, that wouldn't have surprised me. Now, even with all of this great news about the vaccine, still Georgia has consistently ranked last among states for its COVID-19 distribution plan or even execution. Now, state officials said Georgia had received fewer vaccine shipments than other states that was before. But from your standpoint, through your lens, uh, what are some reasons that you think Georgia continues to rank lower in terms of vaccine distribution? I can't speak specifically to Georgia. The research that we've done uh, looked nationally at um, all states to identify best practices. All states have encountered almost all the same challenges that Georgia has encountered. Um, What we have seen in states that have done a really good job, at least a good job early on in the rollout, Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking a couple months ago, 
some of these states already had some infrastructure, some unique infrastructures in place that they were able to leverage. For example, West Virginia and Arkansas both already had an extensive network of independent pharmacies mm -hmm. throughout their state that they were able to partner with to help distribute the vaccine and to avoid some of the red tape that governments encounter when working with national, large national pharmacies. Tanisa, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I was just going to say, in addition to our focus on states, again, our work focused also nationally, but specifically on rural communities. And what we heard from them in terms of the challenges that communities were facing rolling out the vaccine, while we didn't focus specifically on Georgia, however, I do believe that there are, uh, based on what we learned, that there are information and inspiration that can be learned about the challenges across all rural communities. And so what we learned, as Bill said, is that the challenges were universal, many mm -hmm. of them, that the demand exceeded the vaccine supply. We also learned that getting appointments was challenging, and not just because there was a lack of openings, but also some populations in rural communities just had difficulty with online registration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we see that across the country, particularly those who may not have internet access or reliable internet access. There are still people without cell phones and computers. Mm -hmm. um, not all of us are technologically savvy to navigate those online systems. Um, and so it has been difficult um, getting appointments and it's been challenging for many people. Tanisa, when you say information, I get that, but you also added inspiration. Yes. Take that further for I our did. listeners. I did. Um, we, it, it has been encouraging to see that communities are thinking strategically about how they are rolling out the vaccine and that they are implementing targeted outreach efforts. So we have heard a few promising strategies that I think are inspirational and there's a lot to be learned from them. A couple of those are rural communities are engaging trusted spokespersons, so community health workers in communities and faith-based leaders, those who know the community, are of the community, know the culture of the community, and they're leveraging those relationships in order to support vaccine rollout efforts. Specifically, we heard that community health workers are being used to provide education. Mm -hmm. We heard that faith-based leaders are volunteering and staffing vaccination sites. So how awesome is it to pull up to a vaccination site and see a familiar and a trusted face? Um, other things that we heard are communities are planning mobile strategies to reach those who may need more or different support with accessing the vaccine. And another, I think, inspirational promising practice that I, I find really exciting is that there have been innovative solutions to build the workforce around this. So building workforce capacity to distribute the vaccine to more people. There are communities who are using emergency medical services to get the vaccine to people and people to the vaccine. Um, and even using medical school students and others in the communities that can offer shots. So Bill, what Tanisa is talking about is, and we use this word a lot, a holistic approach and one that also includes a lot of public and private community partnerships. Yes. And I think and we're seeing that in multiple states. For example, 
Tanisa mentioned medical students, North Carolina, um, universities in North Carolina are training their medical students to administer vaccines in underserved areas. Uh, Wisconsin is now allowing dentists who, once they're properly trained, to administer vaccines. Um, Connecticut is actually doing something similar with veterinarians. So they're, that, that, that are trained, they have to be trained to, to give the the vaccine. I, I know this because my cousin is a veterinarian. Oh, hey, <laughs> my eyebrows did, you know, perk up a little bit. But hey, if I can yes. take Ridley in to get his regular shots and I get a shot, hey, why not? <laughs> Ridley, by the way, is a 14 year old Maine Coon cat. So, oh, oh those are, I love Maine Coons. And then also I just mentioned that um, that in many states, including Georgia, pharmacists can administer mm-hmm. vaccines. Let me get your thoughts on, on this, you all, before we start to wrap up, because If the goal, and President Biden has talked about this, that somehow this nation may return, could possibly return to some sense of normalcy by July 4th, which is a big holiday, obviously, in this nation. Through your lens, what needs to happen between now and then as it relates to getting shots in arms? And I'll start with you, Bill. I think that it's important that as more and more states open up eligibility to all adults, which President Biden has set as a goal for May 1st. As that occurs, it's important um, that vaccine centers and providers in low-income and diverse areas have the appropriate number of appointments and doses available for the populations that they serve. I think that's probably the most important thing to, to for states to get a hold of to ensure an equitable distribution. Tanisa, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I want to touch on the point that Bill just mentioned, which is equitable distribution. I think the ultimate goal is to ensure that there is equitable distribution of the vaccine and that everyone who is eligible for it can access it. So this is going to mean, again, addressing the needs of those without Internet, but also those without transportation, those who may be homebound or homeless, those without English as a first language, et cetera. So as eligibility has expanded, the ultimate goal is still to ensure that there is equitable distribution for everyone. And how much of all of what you all just said is also wrapped up in lessons learned from this pandemic in terms of public health policy? I think a lot of of it, Rose, is really being able to pay attention to, as you said, to, to what we are learning and what we're learning from this pandemic that as um, things happen in the future and hopefully not something like a pandemic or anything this severe, but any emergency response that happens or if there are broader public health goals and concerns that we really take a look at everything that we have learned from this pandemic and be able to carry those things forward so that we can address even better, I think, situations like this in the future. Bill, lessons learned. I think I'll end on this with another state example. Michigan, early on in the pandemic last year, recognized that there was a lot of uh, misinformation, particularly in diverse uh, African-American communities. And Michigan actually set up a task force to partner with community leaders across the state to dispel that information to get out supplies that were needed, such as masks and hand sanitizer. And now Michigan is taking advantage of that same network to get the word out about the vaccine. All right. Well, July 4th, we shall all see where we are as a nation. 
from Georgia State University, Bill Rencher, Senior Research Associate with the Georgia Health Policy Center, Tanisa Adimu, Assistant Project Director with the center. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll bring you back on when we reach that July 4th mark and we'll see where we are. All right. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to the American Institute of Architects, just 17% of registered architects are women. And according to the 2020 National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, 4% of registered architects in the U.S. are black women. Now, there's very little data about licensed Hispanic or Asian-American Pacific Islander-identified women who are in this field. Well, joining me now to talk more about this and their own personal career paths and the need to, as what we always say, have more diversity in the field. I'm joined by Linda Nunnally. She's the director of Atlanta Operations for Moody Nolan, one of the nation's largest Black-owned architectural firms, and Catherine Bedette, an architect and the and the Associate Dean of Kennesaw State University's College of Architecture and Construction Management. Welcome to you both. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Well, joining me now to talk more about this and their own personal career paths and the need to, as what we always say, have more diversity in the field. I'm joined by Linda Nunnally. She's the Director of Atlanta Operations for Moody Nolan, one of the nation's largest Black-owned architectural firms, and Catherine Bedette, an architect and the and the Associate Dean of Kennesaw State University's College of Architecture and Construction Management. Welcome to you both. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Glad to be Thank here. you. Let's begin here. Let's go back a little bit, and I'll start with you, uh, Linda. Um, who are your mentors in this field for you? Wow. My mentors, they've actually changed over the years. Right now, most of my mentors are my peers, um, I work with an African-American lady that leads our New York, op- New York office, Latoya Kangdang, and I consider her one of my mentors at this stage in my life. Um, also, just my colleagues and my coworkers, I, I think we're continuing, we grow and continue and evolve in our careers and um, constantly growing and learning from them. Catherine, what about you? Who've been the mentors for you? You know, I think uh, when I look around, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the women, especially in architecture, that have um, impacted me and inspired me are um, Cheryl McAfee. Uh, she's a, a leading architect in 
Atlanta. Um, Nicole Hilton, she's younger than me, but I, I still see her as a mentor in some ways because of the conversations that we've had. Um, you know, I could, I could sort of talk about all sorts of people. I think uh, architecture is a very collaborative, um, collaborative profession. So I could, I could make a long list. <laughs> Among the, the folks that you mentioned and along the way, did you all see, and I'll start with you, Linda, first, a lot of women in the field and a lot of women who look like you. You know, I'm a graduate of Howard University School of Architecture and Planning, so I was fortunate to go through the program where I did see a lot of diverse people. Mm -hmm. um, two of my professors, Barbara Laurie and Catherine Prigmore, were licensed female architects at that time. So I was fortunate to see those individuals early on in my um, education. And then even now, I work for Moody Nolan, the largest African-American-owned architecture firm in the country, and I believe 51% of our staff are women. We exceed industry standards for women of color as well. So I've been very fortunate in my career to be exposed to people of color and women of color. Catherine, what about you? Did you see a lot of women along the way? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think the women's that I went to school with and that I've worked with stand out in my mind. Um, I, uh, as a student at Georgia Tech, uh, women, you know, men far outnumbered women, uh, but the women in my class and my program uh, stand out in, in my memory, you know, as being a vibrant, like a vibrant part of the, the environment. Um, I do remember I had I had women professors mm -hmm. all the way through school. Uh, some of them that I was very close to. Uh, even my the very first time that I worked in an uh, architect's office, the summer after my freshman year, uh, uh, there was a woman architect. This was back, you know, should I say the date? <laughs> this was back <laughs> in 1988. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, I just graduated from high school. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I was the first summer, summer after my freshman year in college. And, uh, and there was a woman architect working in the firm. And so even, even just right out the door, somehow I was fortunate enough to see women around me in my, as peers and as role models. So coming into the segment, when I mentioned those statistics, I think it was 17% of registered architects are women. 4% of registered architects in the U.S. were black women. Someone listening says, well, what you all are saying is great, but obviously when we hear those numbers, there isn't, there is a gap here. There is some issue. Uh, why is that number so low and through your lens? Is actually even more startling than, um, than you would think. So uh, African-American women make up 0.4% percent of the architects in the United States. Uh, it's such a small number that I think it's, it's you know, it, there's, you can, you can, you can kind of look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem right. Uh, men, African-American men um, make up 1.6 percent. So our numbers are wrong then, because we have 4 oh, percent. I think, I think it's probably just, you know, a typo. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, that, <laughs> Uh, I need to change but that. It is, it is 0.4%. Yeah. Um, 
so so the numbers are 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 very different than you think. Uh, there's 502 um, uh, African American or Black women architects um, that that are listed in the United States. These numbers are always you know it depends mm -hmm. on what list you're looking at, exactly when the data was collected. Um, but uh, but that's 21 percent of uh, of African American architects, and that that. No, that 502, that number is up mm -hmm. from um, 423 in 2018, but the percentage of all U.S. architects is has been consistent. This is not lost on you all when we talk about these statistics, but given what you all have just said about the mentors and being able to see people who look you who look like you all along the way, but yet we have these startling numbers. Uh, that we just talked about, Linda. Any insight from you on why that why that gap exists? So I think a lot of it is being exposed at an early age. I mean, being exposed that architecture is even a possibility to start with. So um, I think that's interesting that um, it's a result of of women being exposed at young ages to even come into architecture. But also, I think it's interesting, Rose, that I believe. 85% of minority architects are graduates of HBCUs, which mm -hmm. I find a very interesting statistic. And I'm a Howard grad myself. Um, but out of graduates of architecture, not all women go on to become registered or licensed. And part of that has to do with seeing women that seeing is believing, seeing is saying I can achieve that and being able to see women um, I think is important, but because there's been a lack in the profession, prof the profession, some get discouraged. Some don't have the mentorship in firms. Let's talk about that. Let's talk yeah. about that that pathway. So, someone coming out of Howard, you know, or Kennesaw State, what's the usual pathway then? Do you try to join a firm? Do you have to try to get an internship? Grueling would be my word. Um, you have to get an internship, get the experience, get into a firm early on so that you can um, document your credentials. Once you document that, there's a rigorous exam for licensure. Um, in the past, it used to be nine exams. I believe now it's down to six exams. Nine, and nine like exams? Bar six times. In the past, yes. We're getting better, right, Catherine? <laughs> yeah, we're getting better. <laughs> we're getting better, but still, Oof. I think last year, the average, the average was uh, 12.7 years to licensure. And, you know, uh, if that's the average, you know, there are people who are taking a lot longer um, to become licensed. So it's, it is a long, it's a long path. Uh, that, you know, you, there are three requirements, education, experience, and taking the exam. And so you have to do all three. It takes a while. I just want to be clear that I heard you. You said it can take on the average of 12 years before you be licensed. Is that what 12. you said? 12.7 years. Now that includes education, okay. experience, taking the exam. So that's from the start. Mm -hmm. It can you think, take a lot longer. You think this can be discouraging to some folks because of the, as Linda put it, grueling? It can be, and Rose, full disclosure, I am one of those that life got in the way of taking my exam, so it can be discouraging, and if you don't have those people with you to encourage you and support you, you can walk away or just not get licensed or registered. Um, 
So I think there there's value to you saying that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's talk about solutions, if we can, because we're all about solutions on this program. Uh, Catherine, I'll start with you. Knowing what you all have just told me, then what are you offering or what do you see as a different implementation or process to, one, keep people engaged and motivated and to get them closer to, you know, that that getting license, if that's what they want. Uh, what do you see some of, what are those some, uh, what are some of those solutions you see? Um, yeah, I could, you know, I could say there are, there are a lot of solutions um, that we can take action on. Um, I can, I can kind of talk uh, from two fronts. You know, I'm an associate, I'm associate dean um, uh, of a college that has an architecture program and I'm an architect and associate professor of architecture. So, so I can speak from that front. Um, I also served as the 2018 president of AIA Georgia and AIA is our professional organization, our main uh, professional organization um, for all architects uh, in the United States. Uh, there are 116,000 architects in the United States. And um, like, I think there are 95,000 of them that are members of the AIA. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a wide ranging group um, or should be. And uh, uh, as president of AIA Georgia, uh, one of the sort of one of the actions that I saw as being important was um, starting this conversation, and I led a development uh, for a, a national resolution for the organization itself for for the AIA um, that called for the AIA to create and implement a plan to uh, actively identify and prepare and recruit. A range of ethnically diverse women to pursue elections and service at the national level of the organization. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a national campaign. I had a, a, a large group of people working with me on that, providing input, constant input, and campaigning. Um, and this was really a call to action for the organization itself to foster a way for ethnically diverse women to be in leadership positions, to be visible, to be role models. And um, it, I think this is, this is really important in multiple ways, not just, you know, yes, because the role models are important, especially for our students and for future architects, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to see, um, you see that, see, um, you know, someone who looks like you as a part of the profession. And just a natural, normal part of the environment. You have to see that uh, as an as a role model and an example. But I think also at the leader at the level of leadership, we have to have diverse input. We have to have people who have very different ideas, experiences, backgrounds, expectations, and we have to have those differences come together. And that's where you have really great decision making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's, it's important in many ways to me. Linda, through your lens, solutions. Yeah, um, interesting enough, our theme for Moody Nolan this year is be the change. And I think part of being the change is to be intentional. And I know we use that word a lot, but really be intentional about what we're doing to change the face of architects in this profession. And part of what we're doing and what I'm doing is really how do we support young people 
in our culture as a firm? How do we support programs that Catherine just mentioned? Um, how do we go out in these communities of color or in front of women and show them that there's an opportunity and give them that opportunity to help utilize their talents? Um, it takes a village. And I was thinking about that earlier. It really does take a village. It takes the profession. It takes teachers from middle school through high school to college. It takes the community and businesses as well to really see this change come. Speaking of when a change is going to come, to borrow my favorite singer, Sam Cooke, when you think about this industry and this field, and we talked about the statistics, so Let's give a, a let's look at a reasonable timeline. Let's say in five years, how do we move that number? Those numbers that we talked about in terms of what is your hope? Those numbers will be in between in terms of the gap of black women and and women in this field. Linda, well, we mentioned there's 502 black women right now. So I would, I mean, the hope would be to see a rapid increase in those being licensed. The hope would be to see a rapid increase of those coming into schools of architecture programs. Um, But also within the profession, seeing women in more leadership roles, women owning firms and running firms, women um, leading board meetings in firms. I think there's still room for progress in that area as well. Catherine? I think um, I, I think you know if, if I look at uh, if I look at leadership roles if I look at um, students entering into architecture programs and graduates entering into the profession we have um, we have we have the talent there right mm-hmm. uh, so there is leadership talent that can immediately. Um, become visible. There is, you know, we have, um, we have students coming into our programs and uh, record numbers, really, uh, uh, you know, we're recruiting students. Um, So I think, you know, finding ways to clearly identify inequities. What, What are, what are the, you know, understanding uh, when you when you look at the intersection of gender and ethnic bias, mm-hmm. what what are those things that are impacting uh, women of color in our profession? Identify those inequities, and then take action to resolve those problems. Well, let me ask you all this, because as as women, you all are taking the lead on this. But how important is it also for your male counterparts and those those in position of hiring that they also adopt this only if they truly believe in it? Because, look, let's be really clear when we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, DEI, because that is the buzz acronym right now. Diversity looks different for different firms and different environments. So how do you make sure that this isn't just solely on the women to improve this, that it really takes the whole industry? I mean, I think it's it's holding people accountable. I can give you an example. There was a a panel recently um, that featured no women of color and it was in the industry. And a colleague of mine said, Hey, wait, stop. This isn't right. We need to fix this. I think there's a constant reminder until at some point it becomes instinctive, but unfortunately we're still missing it. 
Mm -hmm. So it's to me being that squeaky wheel and, and sharing with colleagues and folks what's right and what's not right. Hey, let's look at this. Let's really see what we're doing. So I, I would say it's being intentional about it. Catherine, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think just reiterating, um, you know, whenever we get the chance, you know, if you, if you think about equity as a principle, but I think of diversity as a benefit um, and it, 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 it's selfish for the profession, really. Um, it's, <laughs> it's very selfish, but when, you know, there's this kind of wonderful thing that happens when you get human beings together and they communicate they inspire one another. And that happens through differences. And the more we understand the creative process and how we inspire one another, genuinely like spark ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when we understand that, you know, you have to realize that for architects, that's vital, right? That's absolute, that's the air we breathe. We have to be creative. We have to have inspired solutions for problems in real context. Mm-hmm. And so understanding the benefit, understanding that this is this is really something that um, uh, it, it is uh, equity as a principle, but also when we achieve it, um, we're, we're all benefiting from that. Catherine Bedette is an architect and the Associate Dean of Kennesaw State University's College of Architecture and Construction Management. And also I spoke with Linda Nunnally. She's the Director of Atlanta Operations for Moody Nolan right here in the area. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. Let's see where we are in five years, eh? Thank you. Thank you. I'll be registered. Thanks, Rose. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.